The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Oh my goodness, are we navigating a moment in history? Our kids are going to look back and they're going to go, how did you guys handle AI when it came along? What was that like? They won't even know what the world was like without it. So we're going there. This is part three of our mini series on artificial intelligence. We're releasing an episode a day for four days. You're in part three today. And today's episode is brought to you by Glue. You put a lot of heart and effort into communicating with your people. So when they miss a message, it's frustrating. What about free texting? You can get it for free by going to get.glue.us slash texting to sign up for free. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O get.glue.us slash texting. And by SurveyHQ, engage volunteers are essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. Check out servehq.church to discover tools you can use to begin engaging volunteers today. Well, I got to tell you, I love this conversation. We have got Ann Skeet and Brian Green on the podcast, and this is the last sort of meta episode I'm doing on AI in our little mini four-part series. So we're going to talk about doomsday scenarios and best case scenarios, why AI is outpacing our ethics and morality around it, mass distraction, which is a huge problem, the coming trust crisis, and why leaders and church leaders really can't ignore AI. Today's episode is brought to you by Glue. Hey, are you tired of getting low email open rates and sending out communications that never get seen? Well, if you're looking for a communication strategy that guarantees, pretty much practically guarantees your message is going to get heard, you've got to check out Glue's free texting for churches. Now, do you know, according to Gartner Research, a staggering 98% of text messages actually get read? Now, that's incredible uh, because email, nope, social, nope, texting, yes, 98%. And here comes another number, best part. Glue's texting platform is 100% free. No hidden cost, no invisible paywalls. You can go and get started today by going to get.glue.us slash texting. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O. That's get.glue.us slash texting to get started today and actually reach the audience you intend. And every church leader also knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is so important to your mission. Now, the challenge is, a lot of church leaders struggle to do it. You try to get everyone in a room and 50% of your volunteers show up and then some of them aren't even trained. Well, what if there was a resource that made it easier? Let me recommend ServeHQ to you. ServeHQ provides simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. And their automation tools are easy to use and they make onboarding new volunteers and church members super quick, easy, and convenient. You can create automatic sequences to enroll learners in online courses, send time messages, and alert church staff members to follow up tasks as well. So check it all out at servehq.church. That's servehq.church. Well, let's talk about Anne and Brian. I mean, they are absolutely brilliant. Anne served as the CEO of American Leadership Forum in Silicon Valley for eight years and worked for a decade as a Knight Ritter executive, 
serving the San Jose Mercury News and Contra Costa Newspapers as VP Marketing. She is a member of the Steering Committee for the Responsible Use of Technology at the World Economic Forum's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution and served on the Partnership on AI's Working Group on AI, Labor and Economy. She participates in academic discussion groups on AI and the political, economic, and social concerns involving the Vatican's Pontifical Council for Culture. She's developed so much, including the iTech Handbook, which we talk about and we'll link to in the show notes. She writes about issues facing leaders across sectors for her blog, Benison, The Practice of Ethical Leadership, and for a lot of media outlets too. She's also a frequent media commentator and panelist. Brian Patrick Green is the Director of Technology Ethics at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University and teaches AI ethics at Santa Clara's Graduate School of Engineering. He is the author of the book Space Ethics, co-author of Ethics in the Age of Disruptive Technologies, the iTech Handbook, co-author of Ethics in Technology Practice, and co-editor of the book Religious Transhumanism and Its Critics, and co-editor of a special issue of the Journal of Moral Theology on AI and Moral Theology. Green has worked on technology ethics with the World Economic Forum, Partnership on AI, the Vatican, and technology companies with $5 trillion in market capitalization including Microsoft, Salesforce, and IBM. So, eminently qualified to talk about it. And best of all, they're also Christians. So we go deep on this episode. Are you ready? Here we go. Ann and Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so I was really thankful to find both of you. It's been a little bit difficult to find Christians who are thinking deeply about AI and ethics. So really glad when I discovered uh, you both. Can you tell me and tell the listeners why you became committed to contributing on this topic and to writing about AI ethics in the future? So I guess what I would say just to start off would be that I have been thinking about science and technology for a long time. My undergraduate degree is in genetics. And then I went to graduate school and I looked at bioethics and, and questions related to genetic ethics. And then I became very interested in just kind of the overall trends that are happening in society with technology becoming more and more powerful and giving us more and more ability to do things that change society in really significant ways. Um, and of course, all of that has led towards AI, because right now AI is one of the most fast moving transformative technologies that we have. And there's so much good that we can do with it. But there are also a lot of boundary issues that we need to be careful of and make sure that we are uh, really focusing on what the good is that we can do. And when the bad possibilities come up, we need to make sure we're controlling those and preventing those from getting out of hand. Mm. And how about you? What's your what, what spawned your interest and expertise in this topic? Yeah, so I tend to come at things from a, a sort of a business and leadership ethics lens. Um, my background was in economics and business prior to coming to academia. So I find myself just thinking a lot about um, technology and how human beings are interacting with it. And of course, something as significant as AI, it's sort of hard to ignore from a leadership perspective. It's going to become so integrated in everything that we do. But I realized that I started thinking about AI probably before I realized I was thinking about AI, because like a lot of people, there's a lot of technologies that have AI in it in more simple terms, maybe than we're going to see in the future with generative AI. So I, for example, when we've 
when Alexa first came into uh, being, you know, I found myself thinking about things as a parent. I remember thinking, is this a good thing to be ordering around a disembodied female voice and asking it, you know, to do things for us? Um, or as a business person, uh, imagining, well, when should uh, Alexa stop listening to us? So, so a lot of the interest was around sort of consumer-related interactions with technology. And then at the enterprise level in businesses, it was probably the Boeing 737 MAX uh, accidents that crashes that got me to start thinking on a larger scale about, well, why are we designing technology that can override humans? Mm -hmm. And should we be doing that? And what kind of culture, corporate culture existed that allowed that development to, to take hold? And so that really got me sort of, as I say, back to thinking about the larger questions for leaders around developing technologies that are this powerful. Yeah, it's timely. You should mention that. My wife flew out this morning on a Boeing 737A Max, 8 Max, I should say. And I did have that thought. And that was the problem, right? The pilots knew what to do, but they kept getting overridden by the technology. And then they thought, well, I must be wrong. And uh, hundreds of lives were lost. Yeah. Yeah. When um, so I think this is this is one of the false ideas, and it's sort of AI 101. But we think that this is new because ChatGPT came out in November of 2022. It rocked the world, massive adoption rate, freaked everybody out. But AI has been around for a long time. What would be some of the earliest iterations of AI that people would notice from their everyday life? Like going back to the 2000s or 2010, what was it? Siri came along in 2010? Siri and, and Alexa was sort of the one I think of. Yeah, Brian, you probably have some other. Yeah, I mean, social media is the thing that comes to mind for me. And the, the fact that so much of what we see on social media is mediated by basically these large algorithms, which are just filtering information for us and giving us kind of trying to personalize things to us, trying to also recommendation algorithms, if you want to think about it that way, in terms of recommending entertainment or recommending other things for us, um, sorts of applications on our phones, whether they're games, because the games can sometimes adapt themselves to try to, to fit your uh, skill level, to try to keep you playing and as, as keep you as uh, occupied as much as possible without getting frustrated and leaving, so they're constantly mm -hmm. adapting. Um, these sort of things are really in many more places than we might expect. Um, they really, they really show up everywhere. And of course, navigation, you know, just navigation on our phone that requires, uh, it was a fairly complicated problem when people figured out how to solve that. And uh, now, of course, we think it's very normal and we use it all the time, but uh, there are these kind of intelligent algorithms, if you want to call them intelligent, mm -hmm. uh, that are going on behind the scenes all the time. And I think one of the things that we actually have to talk about with artificial intelligence is should we call it artificial intelligence or is it really just human intelligence that's been applied to solving a problem in kind of a more automated way? Yeah, why would you call it human intelligence rather than artificial intelligence? I've heard other people argue we should just call it intelligence because that's where we're at. What's your thinking behind that, Brian? Uh, my thinking behind that is that Really, I'm not sure artificial intelligence is possible. I think that's the main thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is which is that I, I think it is it's human intelligence because we shouldn't we should give ourselves credit here. You know, people created these systems, um, but credit goes two ways, right? There's also the responsibility that goes along with it. 
And so if you create an automated system which does something wonderful, that's great. You should get credit for that. If you create an automated system that does something terrible, you need to be held responsible for it also. Mm. And by this idea of delegating, by calling it artificial intelligence, it kind of delegates our responsibility towards it. And you can already see how people are going to love this in the future. They're going to say, oh, the AI did it. It's not my fault. The AI did it. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be really bad for the future of responsibility if we start trying to offload our responsibility on these systems. And these systems also fundamentally, they're just an, they're just a computer program. They're a very sophisticated computer program, but they are doing what somebody told them to do. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's dive in on that a little bit because that's a different take than maybe the one that I had, had in my mind. Um, does would that would you include that with so there's artificial intelligence artificial general intelligence and my understanding is that you know we talked about generative generative intelligence is that yes it was an algorithm or programming initially created by humans but on its own it's going beyond that to get better and better and better whether that's machine learning or whatever so isn't there a point at which the genie is out of the bottle um, or you think we should call it all human intelligence? Just help me understand. I'm a, not a hostile sure. question. I just, I don't get it. Sure. I think the way I, the way I think of machine learning is that machine learning is a tool that humans have created in order to solve a problem, which is much too difficult for humans to solve directly, right? If you had yeah. to let people loose on the internet and told people, hey, read every single web page, and then I want you to arrange all the, the words in statistical, you know, some sort of statistical fashion. Um, that's way too much work. But we're smart enough to figure out how to create a tool to do this for us, which is great. It automates the process. Hmm. So thinking about it as automated intelligence, I think, is perhaps a better way to think about it, okay. which is it takes human intelligence and then automates it. Um, by calling it artificial, it seems like it becomes its own thing. Um, but I don't really think we should think of it that way. We, we need to think of it as a tool that people are using to solve specific problems. And if you want to move to, say, people talking about AGI, artificial general intelligence, and things like that, it's still going to be humans who are creating those systems. It's just going to be progressively more and more powerful automated forms of intelligence. And really us taking ideas of what we think intelligence looks like and automating them. And also, human intelligence is not the only form of intelligence in the world. So we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't think that we have a monopoly on the idea of things being intelligent because there's certainly you know different kinds of intelligence you could find among animals. If you're a religious believer, of course, we mm-hmm. believe in angels and God. So there are all these different sorts of intelligences. Humans are one kind of it, and we're kind of automating certain things that we think are particularly intelligent and then putting them out there. But we need to remember. We created those systems. Ultimately, we are responsible for them. So, Anne, I'll start with you on this question. It looks like the development of AI, because I agree, it's been around for a long time. And anybody who says, I don't really use AI, well, maybe if you live under a rock. But if you're on Spotify, Netflix, uh, Amazon, if you use GPS, yeah, you're using artificial intelligence. You're you're engaging it. But it seems like it's taking some quantum leaps lately. And that obviously a big tipping point was late 2022 with the introduction of chat GPT and mid-journey and stable fusion, diffusion, et cetera, et cetera. Is it fair to say, Anne, that our that the development of AI is starting to quickly outpace our ability to understand what's happening, or is that just not true? 
I think the challenge with any new technology is that it, it can feel like it's come on so quickly, but as you mm-hmm. point out in the case of artificial intelligence, it's actually been iteratively being introduced to us. It's just now that we're all aware of it um, mm-hmm. and get and it's getting talked about a whole lot more. But I think um, human beings always have a period of time where they need to adjust to that new technology. And so they, they may not feel necessarily uh, prepared for it. And I think a lot of folks are experiencing right now this as they interact with AI initially, and it probably is through a chat bot that many people are starting to get in there and play around with it, that um, it can do things that, we, that we're surprised by and that we didn't expect it to be able to do. And uh, we can imagine how it's going to start to help us to make better decisions, but we don't really know what that looks like. And so along, so we've got these great engineering and building chops, right? We've figured out how to build this great uh, program. Now we need to build the moral muscles to go along with it, sort of the moral reasoning that we need and the ways to imagine, well, just because we can do something, should we do it? And what the implications are of using a technology as powerful as AI. Well, you would think or hope in a perfect world, we would have thought through the moral and ethical issues before we developed the technology, but that's not the case. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I think often there are things that we can do that we shouldn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should do them. And you hear that a lot. You've heard that a lot from the people who have created the technology. You know, as they're launching it, they're launching it still with some caution and maybe you could even say some trepidation around just exactly what they've unleashed. I think it's one of the issues that leaders have to contend with in the organizations and the businesses that are actually developing these products or that the employees working on them are sort of wondering, gosh, what are we doing? You know, is this really going to end up being a force for good or will it in fact have you know, harms that we can't imagine. And and you hear some of that from the people who are talking about it. But at the same time, you hear a lot of hope and encouragement from leaders who I think are trying to help us to get more comfortable with the rate of change that AI represents uh, and and recognize that we've we've experienced changes like this before. So we shouldn't necessarily be be terrified by them. So the open letter, Brian, the open letter that um, Sam Altman, Elon Musk, and a bunch of other tech Illuminati sent to the government, and it was it was a global letter too, saying, hey, we need a moratorium on this for six months. Was that just a publicity stunt? Was that a sincere cry of the heart? Like any any take on that? Because it was systematically deconstructed as nice completely impractical because the bad actors aren't going to take a six-month break. We don't know about other governments. Like, what was, in your view, what's your take on the call for moratoriums? Yeah, I think it's, it is unrealistic. Um, and it also is, it, it assumes that we would do something if we had six more months, which <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we would do. <laughs> this is this is kind of the 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 human human nature intruding here, right? Which is that oh gosh, if we just had more time, then we'd solve the problem. But uh, I'm not sure that's the case because we've had decades to think about these problems. You know, the the phrase artificial intelligence was coined back in the 1950s, and we've had several waves of going through different kinds of artificial intelligence over the past few decades. You know, back in the 1980s, we had plenty of movies come out about AI. 
And ever since then, we've had plenty of movies come out about AI, too. And of course, before the 1980s, also back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so these ideas have been in our culture flo floating around. Um, at the same time, the technology has only just now seemed to have caught up with what our fantasy of what AI was supposed to be. And so maybe it's caught us off guard in that way. It's like, oh, we thought that this was fantasy, but now it's reality. And then all of a sudden we have to say to ourselves, okay, um, how do we control it? Because we know the movies always show the AI going bad. So what do we do in order to prevent that from happening? And uh, then we realize, oh, we don't actually know what we're supposed to be doing. And so this kind of provokes in us, okay, if only we had more time, we could do this. But I think that the real problem is that we're not sure if we want to do it or not. Um, we're not sure mm. if we actually want to be in control of AI in these ways. And I think there's a fear, of course, of international competition because, you know, other countries will get ahead of us or in, in this kind of competitive climate, this always or very often at least leads to a race to the bottom in terms of ethics. But there's also, I think, the fear that if we try to control it and then we fail, then somebody's responsible for it. Somebody screwed up. And if we try to control it and we succeed, then there's still a problem there because that means that we're responsible for it also. So there's almost no way out of this um, in terms of thinking about how we're responsible for this technology. If we take responsible, if we take responsibility of it, then of course we're responsible. And if we don't, we're still responsible. Mm. Um, and people would much rather create the technology and, and ooh and awe at it and, and have it do fun things and not think about the tremendous downsides and, and risks that come along with it also. Now, of course, there are lots of people who are out there who are saying, look, these, these risks and harms need to be taken care of. We need to do something about this. And a lot of work mm -hmm. is getting done on that front. But uh, it's a matter of actually getting it done in a way that people are happy about. And that, that is a fundamentally a political process. And so this, whenever technology and ethics and politics mix with each other, it kind of turns into this big tangled ball where it's very hard to figure out how to pull it apart in such a way that uh, everybody's at least happy enough at the end. Yeah, I think the letter was an interesting moment uh, for leaders, um, you know, and it's, and I think we have to re remind ourselves that leaders are people too. So um, they're struggling as human beings with exactly what they have unleashed and, and how maybe to take some information that they have, they may have, a, of course, a broader view of the technology and all of its capabilities and so they start to see some things that are troubling and they're trying to kind of figure out how do I raise my hand and signal to people that there are some concerns here. So that that's, you know, assuming the, the best of the people who decided to launch something like that letter. But I think when you think about the responsibility for these systems, they are significant changes in the way that we've been operating. I think leaders are really struggling with how much they can, they feel like they can accept responsibility for it. And of course, I would say they have to, right? If you're going to create something and launch it into the world, then you are, you are responsible for it. And we're seeing some of the thinking that, you know, is evolving around how to hold businesses and leaders of businesses responsible for the technology, just in some of the legislation that's being proposed. So there is a, a uh, section of the Telecommunications Act, Section 230, that um, sort of governs social media platforms and, and actually allowed technology companies 
to um, avoid being liable for the third-party content that's created on their platforms. But now there's legislation that's being proposed for AI that's actually trying to avoid having that same kind of um, void, if for lack of a better word, having that same kind of leadership vacuum and responsibility vacuum for for AI. And it's actually going to say, uh, propose that uh, the AI companies, the tech companies that are launching AI systems are responsible for the ways mm. that people use their products. In the same so way a pharmaceutical company yes, exactly. right, is responsible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So okay. a real shift in thinking about that responsibility as it relates to technology. Yeah. Okay. I want to, because uh, I really want to get into ethics and maybe we'll come back to Europe and why Europe seems to be able to legislate these things. It's why, I, you know, Apple had to change its charger finally to a USB-C. And, you know, we now have cookies that we have to allow, consent, reject, customize every single time, double opt-in email that was all European and non-American. But might come back to that. I want to get really practical and, you know, you read the optimistic scenarios of AI, you read the pessimistic doomsday scenarios of AI, but I want to go into the future. This 2023, by 2030, what will AI look like? And I know this is almost an unanswerable question, but I'd love even some reasonable speculation from each of you. By 2030, how will AI be impacting our lives in everything from transportation to the way office workers work, to the way we think and interact. What are, what is, what might life be like seven years from now? Yeah. I mean, I, what I would do is of course, look backwards seven years and think about the world seven years ago in 2016. So it was fairly different. Um, Social media of course existed, but it perhaps wasn't as pervasive. Um, You know, think about it before the election and after the election in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, there were a lot of things that uh, that changed during the election and also a lot of awareness that raised about how social media was kind of uh, manipulating our perspective on reality in a lot of ways. And, and uh, also how the Internet was kind of uh, breaking us into different groups of people. So looking backwards seven years, I think we can see the world's fairly different. Um, and of course, there was no chat GPT. There were a lot of other things that were not as sophisticated yeah. seven years ago. Seven years in the future, I think, is going to be even more different than looking backwards seven years, because we've reached kind of an inflection point, I would say, where we're we're accelerating a little bit on the path with AI. Things are going to change a little more rapidly. And in particular, all the things that you just mentioned are going to be changed. There's going to be a, kind of a flow of algorithms into more and more things that we do uh, in our work environment, uh, in terms of entertainment and culture and communication and transportation and uh, agriculture, warfare, education, all these sorts of things are going to become more AI-centric, more uh, roboticized, if you want to think about it that way. I mean, you know, I've seen recent videos of robotic tractors driving through fields, for example, uh, and doing all sorts of things like that. And of course, robotic weapon systems are, are being uh, developed very rapidly. You know, they already, they already exist to a certain extent, but the Ukraine war has really accelerated this. And so we have to uh, kind of look at that and say, what are the drivers that are pushing forward this uh, intelligent intelligentization? It's a hard word to say, intelligentization. But we can think of it as being parallel to industrialization. Industrialization took our human strength and automated it. Intelligentization takes our human intelligence and automates it. And uh, we should really expect to see it showing up in more places 
maybe than we would want to see it. <laughs> yeah. And so this is this is the problem, right? We have to decide: is this the right place to be finding these sorts of algorithms, or is it? Are there certain places where we shouldn't see these things show up? Mm-hmm. And what's your take on life by twenty thirty? Well, I agree with Brian that just about every industry is going to be touched by it. And that, you know, particularly where recognizing patterns is, you know, critical, um, we can be deploying it to help us do things like eradicate disease and, um, you know, uh, things that should have positive benefit for humanity. I also think it's just fundamentally going to change the way we communicate with each other and the way we develop um, collective communal intelligence. So we talk a lot about human intelligence and artificial intelligence, but communities and get, you know people who come together to do work also create their own kind of intelligence. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how AI changes um, those kinds of uh, collective wisdom, if you will, the way that it develops. I think... Uh, one of the most critical things, as I've already mentioned, is that it's going to be incorporated into more and more decision-making. And so um, the ways that we make decisions might be changing or who, we're, or who we're making those decisions with. And, you know, that's one of the things that we do at the Markla Center is we help people to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And our vision is that that includes decisions that are made with the care and concern of others in mind. And we have some some questions that we ask people to consider that sort of are six different ethical lenses through which they can make decisions. And it's my hope that as we um, are starting to integrate AI more and more into our decision-making, that we also keep those questions and that they become part of the way that AI systems are built. We'll come back to those questions. And, you know, Brian just casually dropped in, you know, and robotic warfare, AI warfare, and then moved on to the rest of the list, right? Like, this is really big. And I'm not directing you to talk about warfare, but I would want to say from your purview as experts and people who spend a lot of time in this space, what are two or three issues that are really concerning you right now? Whatever that might be. You might be like, why are we not talking about, or why are we not thinking about, or what if X happens? What are, what are those sort of not good scenarios that might be keeping you awake at night? Brian, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, mass distraction is something that is really uh-huh. bothering me right now. Just the fact yeah. that everyone is very, very wrapped up in either entertainment or various forms of media consumption. Um and this kind of mass distraction and focus on things um, that are not necessarily productive or solving problems or good for our souls in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, I think we need to to consider as being a huge problem. Because if we if we have all the problems in the world and we could solve them, but we choose not to because we're distracted by something else, then obviously we've made a huge mistake. Kind of like the movie Don't Look Up, if you've seen that one, you know, <laughs> I haven't climate seen it, catastrophe. But I've, I've heard a lot. Yeah. <laughs> We're amusing ourselves to death, to quote yeah. Neil Postman. Anyway, continue. So mass distraction. Mass yeah. distraction. I think that also uh, AI and automated warfare is something that we should be concerned about, definitely. Um, and not just not just uh, physical or kinetic warfare, but also the cyber side of things um, mm-hmm. is, is becoming more and more automated in terms of, you know, the United States has a lot of cyber weapons we can use against other countries. China has these same cyber weapons. Uh, so does Russia, Iran, North Korea, name all the countries in the world that have various capabilities to do these sorts of things. 
And you can actually cause a lot of troubles this way. Uh, there was a case not too long ago, if I remember correctly, about a, I think it was a water treatment plant, if I remember correctly, where um, someone had hacked into the water treatment plant and was trying to uh, control it from the outside. But one of the mm. people at the water treatment plant said, oh, this isn't right, and just stopped it, you know, just disconnected whatever the system was. And so it's very important to have a human there watching that. Uh, but we also need to think about the fact that just about every water treatment system in the United States might need to have somebody watching that to make sure their cybersecurity, first of all, is strong enough. But also, we might need a human being there making sure that these things don't happen also. Hmm. Okay. And any doomsday scenarios that you think about from time to time? Well, I think I I think broadly in terms of the impact on children and, mm-hmm. and other vulnerable yeah. populations. So I think that's something to keep in mind and something that we saw with social media was that, you know, even adults, fully mature adults, struggled with how to use that medium in positive ways and to sort of get around its more uh, addictive aspects. And so I think there's, you know, certainly whole populations that we should be thinking about. I think we can't ignore the impact of AI on the environment, just its energy and water use. And so I think that leads us to thinking, being more judicious about whether or not we integrate AI into everything, you know, rather than just have this assumption that it should be integrated into everything, that we're, we're more thoughtful about that. And by but that, I can, think- I, can I just ask a follow-up quickly before sure. we move to the next thing? Which means, like, AI doesn't exist in a vacuum. These are, like, highly, highly powerful machines that demand a lot of cooling, a lot of energy, intensifying the 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 load on the planet is that what you're talking about with AI? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, the yeah. just the chips that are used for AI systems are that much more demanding than your average right. microchip. So, yeah. um, the compute power that's required, and then the cooling in the data centers uh, to keep everything functioning, it both uses a lot of energy and, as I say, a lot of water. And so, well, just like Web three too, right? And uh, and crypto, crypto is a huge, huge energy energy right. suck. So we, so we need to be educating people about that and making sure that they're aware of it. I guess my additional thinking or concern is around how AI will change power in society. Mm. Um, we've been in a period of very decentralized decision-making, uh, both in organizations and in society broadly. This whole idea that uh, we can decentralize decisions. And in some ways, AI may re-centralize decision-making. So mm-hmm. now we have a lot of power in the hands of the people who are actually designing the systems. And um, it's going to be interesting to see. And I guess one of the things that concerns me is whether wealth and associated power will be even more unevenly distributed mm-hmm. after um, we've implemented and integrated AI more fully into society, or whether it's going to help us to share uh, wealth and power more fairly. So I think we've talked a lot about in, in society about things like privacy by design. I think in the future we'll be needing fairness by design. Mm. Mm. Okay, Brian, you had some more thoughts. Yeah, Might as well dwell uh, on doomsday for a few more minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brian's really good at doomsday. <laughs> oh, okay, great, great. No, but you know, this, we, this is why what you're working on is so important, why we have to think about ethics, because we just kind of have our head down and we're playing video games and... Things are changing. You don't want to be fiddling while Rome is burning. Exactly, exactly. That's that's a that's a good uh, story to recall. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the just the one other thing that I wanted to say 
was the the misinformation and disinformation problem is actually really, really huge. And the fact that AI is so good at faking human behavior, faking images, faking text, faking voices, um, all these things that used to be special effects for movies have now become something that if anybody can access them, how do we even know what's real anymore? Um, I've seen this proliferation of, of fake AI-generated images all over the internet just recently. Just yeah. There are certain web pages that I scroll over just to see what the news stories are. And about many of the news stories just have fake pictures associated with them. And I say to myself, why, why, do you, why did you get a fake picture when you could have just used a real picture? Um, oh, wow. And this, I think, is going to be really destructive and erosive of trust. How are we going to be able to trust each other if there's just so much fake information out there that we don't know who to trust anymore? And this is going to be a genuine problem. We need to learn how to be trustworthy and of course, this requires ethics just, just taken to the next degree. We really need to figure out how to make ourselves worthy of trust so that we can have trust in our society. What about human agency in this? I want to get into some sub-issues, but you know, one of the things that I think really bothers me, and I'm old enough to remember the pre-digital era, so I figure I've got some decision-making power and maybe, but I don't know, I could be totally manipulated by algorithms like everybody else, but the ability to freely choose because you think you're making a decision, but you're right. If half the news is fake and slightly twisted, yeah, how do you, how do you make sure that you still have control or agency over your life without becoming the person who lives in a bunker with like five years of supplies uh, by your side, you know, stored away for the apocalypse. What, what, do, what do you do about agency? Yeah, I think, I think the number one thing that I would say is that we need to learn how to be good people. Um, mm. And fundamentally, depending on, I know, learn how to be good people, right? This hasn't been a problem since the beginning of history, right? <laughs> yeah, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we struggled as a species in that area. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah. And certainly there are lots and lots of biblical stories about this. Yeah. Um, but but uh, we need to be discerning, right? We need to yeah. be able to look at reality and say, does this does this shake out as being real or being fake? Mm. Uh, we need to be able to rely on our own judgment, but also know who to trust. Um, and at the same time, we also need to be humble. We need to be very humble about what we're consuming because we could be very, very strongly believing in something, which then turns out to be false. And if we can't recognize that we need to change our minds, then uh, we're stuck, right? We're, we, can't, uh, we can't actually do the right thing if we, if we can't humble ourselves into, into converting, if you want to think about it that way. Um, and of course, this becomes extremely, extremely difficult. But at the very most basic level, if you treat other people as you want to be treated, you know, follow the golden rule, follow mm. those very basic commandments, um, where you, you treat others as you want to be treated. Love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God with all your heart and soul. Um, if you're really living life that way, then it shouldn't, um, you, even though you might be experiencing um, you know, lots of disinformation or other bad things hitting you and perhaps warping the way you're treating or thinking about reality, maybe it won't actually change the way that you treat other people. If you know every, every human being, even if you think... Th that they're a bad person or something like that. If you tr still treat them as, you know, as God wants them to be treated, then I think that's ultimately the best that we can do. We have to just treat each other as, as God wants us to treat each other. Yeah, which we haven't been doing particularly a good job of over the last decade, too. And what are your thoughts about human agency? 
Well, I think on a macro level, we are losing agency around some things. I think this is the big gripe that people have maybe just broadly with the tech industry, right? Is that all of these new technologies are launched and we don't get to vote on that. We don't get to say we don't want to deal with change that's coming at us this rapidly and we don't want to have to start uh, you know, uh, figuring out if every phone call that we're getting is a real phone call from a real person we know or an automated voice, you know, falsely representing someone that we know and pretending. Yeah, this is your son and he's in yeah, jail exactly. and needs some money. And it sounds exactly like your son. Uh, yeah. I mean, that stuff is coming. Right. And so we don't we don't necessarily, we, we weren't asked if we wanted to deal with that. That's something that was launched on us, if you will, along with all the capabilities that come with some of these new technologies. So on the macro level, you could argue that we are losing some agency or that, again, back to the thought, the thinking about and why we need to be thinking about power, that those decisions have gotten concentrated in the hands of people who have profit motives, you know, that are really uh, behind some of the decisions they're making. They're being made in a, in a market-based sense instead of being made by governments who might be looking out for the common good as their primary consideration. So in the uh, on the macro level, yeah, this is sort of like, uh, you know, an experiment that's been launched on society where society didn't get a chance to say we want to participate. But I agree with Brian on the micro level, on the individual level, that, um, you know, change is, is, is a constant, right? And it's always part of the human experience. And so all we can do as we're trying to grapple with that sort of high-level change is think about how we as individuals are going to respond to it and what our own personal responsibility can be to learn more about the technology, to make conscious decisions to not use certain technologies if you can't get comfortable with them, to if you're in a position in an organization where you can be thinking about um, how broadly to introduce technology, you know, to be given, to be thoughtful about how quickly people can really assimilate that degree of change and sort of pace how you're bringing things into an organization so you're not burying people all at once with uh, such a tremendous amount of change that they that they can't process it. So I think there are individual choices that we can be making that um, kind of return agency to us. And, and, and in, in essence, we've never really lost it. Mm-hmm. So you have the whole spectrum, as we were talking about before we started recording, particularly in church leadership. So we have business leaders and church leaders listening to this, but I want to drill down on, on church leaders for a minute, because a lot of the business leaders who listen, listen because they're involved in their church, which I love and respect. But the challenge, I think, is you got a few pastors who are really all in on AI, and they're the early adopters and everything. But I would say we have a disproportionate uh, number of disengaged and lagging pastors. You know, they always call them the laggards, et cetera, whenever there's any kind of change uh, study. And I would say in the research I've seen, in the polls that I've seen, uh, pastors are definitely not early adopting in this area. Um, What's at stake if you kind of put your head in the sand and ignore AI? Because even if you don't implement it at your church, everybody that you're serving and everybody that you're trying to reach and everybody who's part of your church is now wrestling with these issues. So what do you think is at stake for the pastor who ignores AI? I think there's, um, I think pastors need to be thinking about uh, how AI affects the formation of communities and how communities interact with one another. 
Um, and so, as I said earlier, you know, AI is going to change the way that we communicate with each other and the way we the way we interact with each other. So, if you're the pastor of a, a church, you can't ignore that. You have your own community of faith that's probably going to be impacted as AI becomes a, a more natural part of decision making. And you have families that are going to be influenced by this sort of new technology and what's going on. But it's also true that people come to church for their moral frameworks, and they're going to need them now more than ever, right? If, if what we know is that AI is going to become uh, a more integral part of the way we all make decisions, we're going to continue to need help with how we make those decisions. And that makes those moral frameworks um, just that much more critical. How about you, Brian? What do you think is at stake yeah, here? I, I would say that what, what's at stake, you know, everything's at stake. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, one one way that I think about this in terms of, of artificial intelligence is that it's just like regular intelligence, right? Everything that we use human intelligence for, we're going to use artificial intelligence for. Mm. Everything good and everything bad. And we really need to figure out how to, once again, promote the good uses and limit, control the bad uses of that technology. When it comes to business leaders and church leaders, the next step might be to, once again, how do you become a moral exemplar for the people who are seeing you in your leadership position? Because this is something Anne says all the time, the tone is set from the top. Um, The leaders of organizations really... Um, influence the way that an organization operates. We see this in the technology industry all the time. I've worked with a lot of tech companies. Some tech companies work really well when it comes to ethical issues. Some do not. And that's very often just because the culture of the organization is set by the leader who's at the top. Um, When it comes to AI in, for example, a church setting, uh, it starts to become kind of a strange question in a lot of ways, because we might not think to ourselves, how is AI going to function in my church? Uh, Mm. (laughs) You can think of all the dystopian scenarios of setting up, you know, surveillance cameras everywhere and monitoring who's in church, or we're going to monitor your social media accounts, you know, all the the worst things that you can imagine. Um, And yet at the same time, there's also a useful side to that too. You can think, oh, make it so much easier to, you know, I don't know, encourage people or, or something like that. But we need to make sure not to fool ourselves, right? Um, This is going to be a disruptive technology. It's going to give people a lot of new powers, and then they really have to decide what is the right application of those powers. And as leaders are making those decisions, they should think to themselves, if I make this decision, how will people see me? Will they see this as a morally exemplary position to take, or will they see this as, oh, that's a little sketchy, or that makes me wonder whether the pastor of the church is, first of all, are they in touch with reality? Are they in touch with what people in the church want? Um, are they doing something bad or look scandalous? Um, all these sorts of issues are things that need to be kept in mind and very much should be talked about before any sorts of these uh, kind of big changes happen. Um, because once again, trust is going to be so important going into the future. Mm-hmm. Can we maintain trustworthiness? Can we maintain a trust, a trusting community? Um, and in order to have that trust, we, we really need to work hard to, to make sure that there's that there is this trust that we can hold on to in our group. Um, if the whole world becomes a confusing place where we're not sure if we can trust things, hopefully, hopefully, at least we can trust the churches that we go to and the leaders in those churches. 
And you said earlier that there are six areas you really think corporate CEOs, church leaders, leaders of any kind need to focus on. Can you walk us through a few of those key issues, the ethical issues? Our primary technology at the Markle Center is actually somewhat low-tech. It's this Hmm. framework for ethical decision-making, and it captures sort of all the major philosophical perspectives around ethics and um, so, and they and they uh, are are points of view that have come over the millennia, right? So they're not just um, not just recent. So the questions that we ask people to consider are: um, first of all, which option might respect the rights of all the people who have a stake in a certain decision? So it's just a basic human rights perspective. So from a financial standpoint, I've heard about stakeholders versus shareholders, right? If it's all about shareholder value, you'll do whatever it takes to jack up the stock price. You're saying, no, there are stakeholders, people who have a voice, people who don't, people who have a vote, people who don't. Is that what you mean by stakeholders? Yeah, well, we could do a whole podcast on shareholder primacy versus stakeholder capitalism and have a very long, robust conversation. I actually don't think there's as much space between those two points of view as a lot of people would have you think, because you simply can't run a good organization if you're not taking all stakeholders into account and thinking about the community, thinking about employees, thinking about what consumers want. That's all part of it. So um, the rights perspective says that you need to consider what are the individual and collective rights, but really you're looking at the individual rights of a human being, Um, just that we each are born with rights simply because we're humans that should be respected. And that, for example, we have the right to not be used as a means to an end would be one example of that. So that's sort of a a look at the rights lens. Mm. Then the other questions that we consider that we encourage people to think about are, we've already talked a lot about fairness. So which option treats people fairly and gives them what they're due in a certain situation? Uh, We talk about utilitarianism, which a lot of people are very familiar with, this whole idea of, you know, what's the greatest good for the greatest number or that which does the least harm. Uh, In in a business setting, that might just look like a cost-benefit analysis. Um, we also want people to think about the common good and the community as a whole. So that would be thinking about what's the best option for the whole community, not just some subset of its members. And then um, we look at the relationships people have with each other. And there's an ethics of care lens that asks you to take into account those relationships and the feelings uh, of all and concerns of all the stakeholders and then finally, there's this idea of virtue ethics. You know, how can I be, what option will allow me to be the best person that I can be? And, um, and that should guide my thinking on the, on the action that I take in this moment. So those are uh, intended to be helpful when, any, when you're facing, you know, we call it the framework for ethical decision-making, but it's really a framework for any decision because <laughs> pretty much any decision you make has ethical implications in it. Well, this kind of goes back to what Brian was saying, right? Just be a good human, like like if you actually exactly. live out your faith. But it is shocking at how often it's easy in the name of profit, expediency, efficiency, growth, selfishness 
to ignore some of those six. Like when you share them, this is not like, oh my gosh, nobody's ever thought about this. It's like, this is hopefully what your parents taught you. This is hopefully what you're hearing from the Holy Spirit when you're praying about decisions, right? Like th- this is this is basic, um, but I mean, your book is is thick and it's, it's, it's actually a very intelligent book with a lot of nuance to it. Um, but I, I, what I love about that is it feels like it's doable by just about anybody, that that is just a good framework to have for your leadership team, for your board, uh, for your governance, uh, governing board, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why, why do you need to say what sounds obvious? Because we don't follow what's obvious. So there are a couple of different reasons. Um, yeah. one of which is just, you need to say things that are obvious because actually they're not completely obvious all the time. Yeah. Um, by saying these things, um, one of the things to recognize with those six different lenses that Anne just talked about is that we all tend to have our own favorite lens or a couple or three favorite lenses, you know, Mm. and then other people have different favorite lenses. And when people with different lenses come together and talk to each other, they can either conflict with each other because they're not talking the same ethical language, or they can say, oh, I never thought about it that way. You've, you've taught me something Mm. new and I can learn from you. And so... One of the reasons it's good to make ethical decisions in groups of people is because it gives us the ability to have more perspectives and think about the ethical issue in a more rounded way. And it gives us a more holistic understanding. It helps us avoid blind spots in particular. So, for example, um, as Anne was saying, so much of business relies on this kind of cost-benefit analysis. And if you look at ethics purely from a cost-benefit analysis perspective, you're going to have big, big blind spots. And so you release something out into society. And all of a sudden people say, hey, didn't you think about human rights? Didn't you think about what this would do to social institutions or uh, what kind of unfairness or injustice this might promote? Um, And so it's really important as leaders to come together, think as as comprehensively as possible and make sure that those blind spots aren't there. Um, The next thing I would say is also something that I feel like Anne should be saying this because another thing Anne says all the time, which is that. The tone, you know, once again, like I was saying, the tone was set from the top, um, which is that uh, if you make those values explicit in an organization, then everyone knows what's expected of them. Um, And if you'd never make them explicit, people don't necessarily know. Um, And this can really affect culture in particular ways. But I think, Anne, you probably have something to add to that because you always say it better than I do. Oh, no, I think you did a great job, Brian. I I think, you know, you you wonder why organizations um, take the time to write down policies, for example. And um, policies are really just because it seems like things are obvious. Everybody should know what to do. But as organizations grow and become more complex, you actually need those policies because they are just fundamentally an articulation of the organization's values. And so leaders need to make sure that they've been explicit and that they've taken the time to define for people what the values in an organization are and how they're going to get used to make decisions. And that's one of the things that, you know, you mentioned our book. We tried to do in the book was to help people go from what are sometimes somewhat lofty principles that sound very good if you say them fast and everybody feels good for having made a commitment to them, But it's much harder to see in some organizations how to get from those principles down to what you're actually going to do in a given moment. And so we tried to sort of walk people through, okay, well, first you have this principle, but then underneath that principle, there's a lot of 
sub-principles or more specific principles that you have to consider. And then once you are considering them, then you have to get to the point of, well, what's the action that I'm going to take and how am I going to, um, you know, render a policy in my organization? And um, those are important practices. That's fundamentally, I think, you know, leaders want to make sure that people know what to do in their organization. One of the things that drew me to leadership ethics in the first place was trying to answer this question for people who were in leadership positions who would say, oh my gosh, I'm on the hook for everything that everyone in my organization does. You know, how can I be sure that everybody Mm -hmm. behaves well? And so um, one of the ways you can do that is through policy. Another is through sort of intentional culture management and, and sort of creating the conditions in your organization so that ethics will actually get used. Because ethics is actually pretty easy. Um, it just takes some courage to use it, but it also takes, in organizational life, it takes the right conditions to be present. And we know a little bit about those conditions. We've done research that helps us to know what they are. And so leaders need to spend the time to cultivate those conditions in their organizations. So I want to get to some specific application of some of your principles to show how just complex this is, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk about what some of those conditions are. Like, how do you go? Because Enron's number one value, everybody knows, was integrity, right? And they're all in prison. So, you know, you can have something on the wall. It's like, we value all stakeholders and and it just doesn't happen. So what what are the conditions you need for this to go from idea, of course I'm going to be ethical, to reality? So there's uh, three major ones that we discovered uh, in the work that we did. The first is this idea that you have a sense of responsibility to society mm-hmm. and that you articulate it, that you actually speak to the impact that you have on others as an organization, as a business enterprise. The second is that you have a climate of mutual trust and understanding. So that looks like decentralizing decision-making, uh, you know, allowing it to happen in lots of different places in the organization, and also um, encouraging people to speak up and making it safe for them to do that so that they can bring issues forward. And the third is a practice of ethical deliberation. And there are some sort of best practices, if you will, towards how you go about making decisions that are important. The idea that you use data to um, make your decisions, that you involve the people who are going to be impacted by those decisions, that you think about the downstream effects, um, that you're at least trying to anticipate what could go wrong uh, in the future, and that whenever you uh, can, as you've, after you've made a decision or gone through a deliberation process, that you share what you can about that process and the thinking behind a decision. So some transparency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Transparency is key. And so when you see those conditions in organizations, it's much more likely that ethics will actually get used. And that's why we talk about a more holistic approach to tech ethics, for example. You can't just think about just the technology or just the principles that are going to be used in the design, development, and deployment of that technology, you also have to think about the organization where that technology is being developed. Yeah. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about a couple of issues that are definitely on my mind. 
One, you know, everybody deals with relationships, but in the church in particular, you've already said it, relationships are key. And one of the areas that's really exploding, I mean, for years there's been pornography, then we had digital porn, um, but now we're getting into virtual relationships, well beyond Tinder or Hinge or Bumble or any of that stuff. You've got People who are creating bots, sex bots, relationship bots, and even in some of the writing reading I've done, you know, AI partners, spouses, lovers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard enough navigating human relationships and, you know, we're, we're involved with that. But what happens when you have an AI spouse who's just nicer than your real spouse, who never says the wrong thing, who knows exactly what you need, who literally can read your mind, who just is, you know, the perfect person as opposed to an actual human that you could be in relationship with. Like in Asia now, there are sex bots, et cetera, et cetera. And these people are now, it's not just a a robotic thing. But they have personalities. It's sort of like, I think the movie was Her 10 years ago with Joaquin Phoenix, if I remember right, um, where you fall in love with your operating system. There's way more advanced elements of that now. What are your thoughts about virtual relationships and virtual partners? So you're exactly right that this is a huge problem. This is, if, if an AI can give you everything that you want, reality becomes very frustrating and uh-huh. this is something that we we need to really avoid. Uh, you know, this, this is this is a bad situation to be in. Um, yeah. AI should always try to turn humans back towards relationships with other humans. Is what I would say. AI mm-hmm. should never act as a kind of a dead end, which is pulling human attention towards it as if it were a person. So all the things that you just listed in terms of AI taking people's attention, distracting us, whether it's as a spouse or a girlfriend. Or you can imagine, you know, there have been movies where where it's like, oh, it's a little robotic baby that you have to take care of, or oh, mm-hmm. this is this is a replacement for your your grandmother or your or your parent who died. Um, mm-hmm. All these sorts of very personal relationships are not things that AI should replace because they are very core to human identity and our ability to relate to anybody at all. Um, if we have AI step into these into these relationships. Um, it's going to act like a poison or, or or something corrosive, which really damages our ability to relate to other human beings. Because once again, the AI, like you said, is going to want, it's, it, it's designed to give you everything you want, but everything you want in this case is completely fake. It's not real. Yeah, and it's not actually what you want. You will be It's miserable. not actually what you want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Ultimately, it's a distraction that's just pulling you away from reality. Hasn't that ship sailed, though? Like, isn't that technology available today in many arenas? It is available today. I think yeah. the, the, the just because the ship has sailed doesn't mean it can't be called back to port, right? Okay, fair. <laughs> that's good. I that's think, good. Because I'm very concerned honestly, about this. Honestly, I think when, when we are talking about AI regulation, this should be one of our number one priorities, which is that AI should never act like it's a person. It should never act like it's a human being. Um, whether it's deceiving you on a telephone call or any other situation, if it's, you know, whether it's acting like it's in a in a very personal relationship with you, AI should not be able to imitate people that way. It should be, I think, fundamentally illegal. But right now it's doing exactly that. It's, it's everywhere. It's unregulated. Yeah. 
Anne, what are your thoughts about uh, AI relationships, sexual, emotional, and otherwise? Because I, I, you know, my challenge to pastors in a recent email I sent out is, don't do your next relationship series without addressing this, because this is happening in your church. Maybe not with everybody, but with somebody. Well, I think, first of all, I agree with everything that Brian said. Uh, and I think that um, we've seen technology sort of contribute to dehumanization now for a while. That's one of the challenges I had when social media first came online was not only the addictiveness of it or any of the um, the, uh, the those kinds of things that people have talked about more commonly, but some of the worst of human beings were brought out by social media. Yes. Uh, you know, sort of people started to to brag about silly things on social media so that other people had this sort of sense that they were missing out on this fabulous life. But but even at its core, you know, people were posting very simple, seemingly benign things like, oh, I went to Starbucks today and I got this latte. Well, you know, who really cares? I mean, <laughs> we, we became so completely self-absorbed and believing that everything that we were doing was so critically important. And that's not actually the behavior that you want to encourage in other human beings. So similarly, I think we're starting to see some applications here. Mm. And there's some things, in, and Brian and I, as we've talked about this, there's some things where I can imagine, right? It doesn't seem that bad to me. And I, if an elderly person is lonely and there's a way to, um, you know, combat that loneliness uh, with some kind of AI friend that would keep them company, that doesn't seem bad. I mean, the Surgeon General has said that loneliness is, you know, a medical crisis in our country. Mm -hmm. And so I can think of certain applications where it seems like, okay, well, that, that could be a reasonable use of it. But then I go back to my own rationale as it relates to social media. Wouldn't it be so much better if some human being were interacting with that elderly person and were taking care of them and thinking about them? And so if we, you know, we don't want technology to continue to extend our human laziness as it relates to our care for one another. Well, and it would be really easy as a human if you didn't have a particularly close relationship with a parent to say, oh, we'll just spend $1,000, get them an emotional support AI, and then we don't have to go, right? Which is right back to be a good person. I mean, kind of is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but we are not very good at that as a human race. Another thing that, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts from your area, Silicon Valley, and transhumanism is really taking off and largely from people outside of the Christian faith, you know, and if I think about that, I believe, and I think you guys believe there's life after life, right? So after, this isn't all we see, and this isn't all that God has prepared us for, but a growing number of people don't believe that. So they're very into, you know, the cold plunge is sort of the simplest version of this, but what can I do to optimize my health? And then all kinds of supplements and exactly how to sleep and exactly what your morning routine should be and exactly what protein you should intake, not intake, how many carbs you should eat, how many grams of this you should ingest, exactly the workout you need for resistance training. So you can live forever. I mean, Walt Disney, <laughs> he had his body frozen just in case it could be resurrected in the future. Uh, we're just seeing this go to whole new levels of people to extend not just health span, but lifespan. And, you know, again, I think that points us into eternity. These are theological, ethical issues. What's your take on transhumanism and AI? And then, you know, we can get into neural links and, uh, you know, becoming one with the machine. 
as part of that too. This is something Brian and I talk about and joke about all the time, um, even though it may not sound like it's that funny, because <laughs> I uh, my joke is that I'm going to get a T-shirt that says I'm a deathist on it, uh, meaning, <laughs> meaning that I believe that the natural order of things should prevail. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think in all seriousness that there's a certain hubris in some of what's labeled as innovation you know, believing that we can improve on God's creation and make ourselves immortal strikes me as one example of that kind of hubris. And so I, um, you know, I approach all of those ideas with trepidation, where I think that we think we can tinker around with science and make things better. And often we tinker around and we make things worse. Building on that, I, I would say, you know, someone once said to me, for sinful creatures, death is a blessing. Um, and I think we really need to, I know it's, it sounds horrifying, doesn't it? <laughs> but I think we really we need to ponder that because ultimately we aren't made to just live here on earth consuming resources, uh, you know, enter being entertained and, and things like that. We, we ultimately do have a goal that is beyond us. Uh, of course, we have our, our goal here as, as part of a church community here on earth, but also our ultimate calling to be, be at home with God ultimately. Um, and so all these all these things that we do that we you know we've we've you've, you've just said just now, um, for example, uh, it's hard to follow the golden rule. It's hard to love someone else as you love yourself. But ultimately, after we die, we have this hope in heaven that this will be something that will become easy at that point. That we will love everyone as they deserve to be loved, and we will in turn be loved as we deserve to be loved. Um, what I would say about transhumanism that it's fundamentally a religious ideology. It hmm. takes a lot of ideas from Christianity and says, you know what, heaven, we don't believe in God anymore. We don't believe in heaven, but we're going to make it here on earth. We're going to become God and we're going to make this happen here on earth. We'll create our own utopia. Um, and by and we're going to achieve that by pursuing technological power. Um, and I think that if we look at the Bible, there's actually some fascinating uh, passages in the Bible that remind us that we are supposed to be like God in terms of holiness, not in terms of power. If we seek mm. after being like God in terms of power, but not holiness, then we will ultimately destroy ourselves. That's the only outcome that can happen because, <sighs> because God, because God is perfectly good and God is perfectly powerful and omnipotent. Um, and so for that combination for God, it makes perfect logical sense, but humans can't have the goodness element to it. And so if we pursue that incredible amount of power, uh, there's always going to be that little bit of sin in there. You know, the, the danger of evil will always creep in and it will always eventually burst forth and uh, destroy, you know, everything good that we that we think we created. We really need to think more deeply about how do we become better people? How do we become holy like God is holy? Um, otherwise, we're going to become dead like sin is dead. You know, I appreciate the deathist t-shirt. That's quite funny. <laughs> That's good. I just ordered one. Uh, it should be arriving soon. Uh, it's Silicon Valley Bank risk management team. Uh, nobody will get the joke, but for the five people who get the joke, I think it's it's quite funny. It's just a <laughs> reminder. When I was in college, I used to get old maps and put them up. And there are maps that always distorted. I live near the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes or, you know, on one side in the West, it was just unknown territory. And I'm like, just remember, like, you just don't know. You just don't know. This is the best we can do. And again, to every CEO listening, to every leader listening, to every church leader listening, 
if you're not caught up in transhumanism, people that you lead or people that you serve are. And there are people who are desperate to try. I, you know, my wife and I've talked about it a lot. Uh, I'm definitely into maximizing health span, but not lifespan. So in other words, if I can live a good 75, 85, 90 years and, you know, be reasonably responsible with what I eat and how I exercise and how I care, steward my body, great. But I'm not, I, I don't know that living a particularly long life is a blessing in the end. Um, yeah, go just, ahead, Brian. I just want to build on what you were saying, which is that all of this is not to argue against hospitals or healthcare right, or being right, healthy right. or exercising yeah. or anything like that. Or even like taking that. your supplements. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, do everything that you should to, to, to stay healthy. And, uh, you know, Jesus was a healer. Jesus went around healing people. Yeah. So obviously yeah. this is extremely important. We need to take care of our bodies and we need to take care of each other fundamentally. But on the other hand, we also need to recognize that we need to let go at some point. And that's a hard thing to do, but we just need to be able to let go and recognize that that will happen for us eventually. Uh, I know we're coming close to time. Do you have time for a couple more questions? It's been really yes. interesting. Sure. Okay, great. What other, and the question is, what other questions should leaders be asking themselves about AI? I'm thinking about the... Um, the big issues for leaders have to do with, um, I think, with motivation uh, and trying to make sure that we're putting out there the best metrics, if you will, and, and think, thinking about what we're going to be measuring. How, when we look at this, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, will we decide that AI has been a force for good? And um, what conditions will we see for the common good? Again, kind of at the macro level, will um, poverty have continued to decline? Will we continue to be able to eradicate diseases? You know, measures that are um, significant and help us to improve. And to make sure that most of those measures are uh, more carrot than stick. You know, really trying to motivate people um, to do the good things as opposed to threaten them. You know, I, mm. I, I listen to a lot of the public discourse right now around AI and it's fear-based. And that kind of conversation only erodes trust. It just makes people that much more nervous and anxious. It makes you bury your head in the sand too. Yeah. Like, ah, I can't just, do anything about it. We're all going to die. Right? Yeah. Step away because it's too much mm -hmm. for me to even consider. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, what we want people to do is become more educated about yeah. new technologies as they come online to understand their benefits and their pitfalls and be able to make good decisions as individuals about how to use them. So I think if I'm a leader, I'm thinking a lot about motivations and um, the ways to uh, incentivize people to, to use AI for good. I'm thinking a lot about creating hope for people because that's fundamentally the work of leaders. And um, so we want a hope-filled future and we want uh, leaders who are, who are um, modeling that for other people. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about human beings and how they're impacted by the rate of change, you know, and yeah. just how much can people handle at any given point in time so that as I bring them these new things, if I want them to embrace them, that I do it in a way that's thoughtful and um, considerate of exactly what they can handle. So can I drill down before we get to you, Brian, on the rate of change? Because you mentioned that a couple of times. And I just, I want to get a little more 
micro on that because I can see some leaders listening to this and saying, see, so basically if it's too much for people, the church should be a safe refuge. My company should be a safe refuge. I can ignore it or I can just delay it. Is that what you're saying by that? Or what are you saying about the the rate of change? No, I'm saying that we need to remember that the way trust is built is through discourse and engagement. So you need to give people time to talk about what's going on. You need to give them time to sort of get around AI systems and get to know them. And you need to give them time to disagree and loop back to old behaviors before they fundamentally let go and embrace change. And I think if there's one fault of almost every leader, certainly I know it's a mistake I've made in organizations I've led, is wanting to move too quickly. You know, seeing, okay, I can see the ultimate benefit of this. Let's get there as quickly as we can and not allowing for the the very humanness, our humanity, to sort of have time to work its way through what that change is. So I'm not saying don't engage. I'm saying engage thoughtfully and engage in ways that creates the space for other people to get what they need to be able to move forward with the change. So let me posit a very real world scenario to either of you on that. And then Brian, I'm still going to come back to you. But one of the areas in which uh, I think AI is being integrated, because often it's in the background, right? So if you're going to start using ChatGPT to generate your sermons, first of all, it's not that good. Secondly, you should probably disclose that in the same way that if you base it on a book, uh, you know, intellectual property, not stealing ideas. But a more background way is Every church, even small churches, use databases, right? It used to be a software you installed in your computer. Now it's all cloud-based. And those, there's four or five major companies that do databases for churches, basically CRM in a business world, right? So you can track people's names, addresses, phone numbers, um, giving, volunteer status, etc. Those are all run by larger companies. So your church may say, we're not doing anything in AI, but those companies are now starting to integrate it so that your emails, when you send them out, are customized, so that your donor reports are automatically generated, et cetera, et cetera. So that AI is being baked into the software, or, or let's say hypothetically it is. Do you, what do you do in that setting? Do you let people know? Do you just... Uh, adopt the policy? Like, how do, you, how do you do that? Because that's all background work that you're not directly doing in the same way that you're not changing the algorithm on Instagram, but it's directly impacting how you communicate with people in your church. And soon, you know, I mean, I'm talking to tech founders now who where all the small group questions will be generated automatically based on a sermon, uh, the Bible study guides will be generated, the social media posts will be generated, all that stuff's in development right now. So I think, you know, back to those best practices of ethical deliberation, I think you share with people that you're using those technologies and you, more importantly, you share why. You Mm -hmm. talk to them about what the thinking that went into the decision to actually use them and how they're benefiting the congregation or maybe simply how they're benefiting the leader of the congregation. Mm -hmm. But you disclose it. You you are transparent about it and you... Um, are thorough about that. I think it, it helps people to know you, you've got to remember you're in relationship with the people in your community and a, a relationship is two-way. And so if you want them to continue to be, um, you know, trusting you, you have to trust them that when you share your 
you're thinking that they're going to be able to follow that logic. And if they right. don't follow that logic, that you're going to give them the opportunity to ask you questions about it. Yeah. Brian, what issues are you thinking about that we should be thinking about? I think that we should be remembering the benefits that AI can bring to us. So we we think a lot about the negatives, um, obviously, because nobody wants those terrible things to happen, but also remembering the benefits. So, for example, um, if there's a loneliness crisis in the world, then let's think about ways that churches can do something to help people with that loneliness crisis. Mm. Are there ways to outreach them? Are there ways to particularly contact, you know, folks who are elderly or homebound or youth. You know, there are many, many young people right now who are really experiencing a lot of despair because they, they think that the that the world just looks terrible and they, they don't see a, a happy future for them. Uh, so that idea of hope, as, as Anne was saying, offering hope is so important right now. And as a church, building up a trusting community uh, where people grapple with serious, real problems and come up with good, you know, serious, real solutions to them. Um, I think that will provide a service to society, which is, you know, really what God created, you know, churches for in the first place. These are supposed mm-hmm. to be places where we be can, we can become the best, you know, people that we can be. And um, it's times like this, you know, when, when we're facing these huge challenges, I always think to myself, you know what? Um, people talk very much about having faith in God. Well, I think we also need to remember God has a lot of faith in us. Um, you know, God, God thinks that we can actually overcome these challenges that, that, that he's facing, that, that he's, you know, get, given us to live in, in this world. Um, and so our job as our part of it is that we have to actually, we need to recognize a challenge. We need to be aware of them and we need to actually do something about them. We need to make sure that we are taking these challenges and overcoming them and ultimately using these technologies for good purposes. Um, one of the things I like to think about, you know, just as a biblical story, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, of course, they, they, when they realized they were naked, they put leaves on themselves. They made clothing out of leaves. Of course, leaves are terrible for clothing. That's just about the worst thing you can make clothing out of would just be straight leaves. And what happens when they leave? God says, here, here's some better clothes, (laughs) you know, animal skins, much more appropriate. Um, and so in that way, we should think to ourselves, you know what, God can give technology as a gift, as a gift, something that's supposed mm-hmm. to give us uh, something better for taking care of ourselves, for taking care of each other, ultimately, hopefully for making the world a better place. But uh, ultimately, you know, that first gift might just be an idea. And then from then on, we need to make sure we're actually using it for the good purposes that, that we can actually uh, use them for. Well, that's a hopeful note. You know, the church and the ethical use of AI can be a best case scenario that we can actually use it for human progress. Uh, but we have to behave uh, like moral, ethical thinking people because there are exactly. so many unintended consequences as well. Hey, I'd be remiss before we wrap up. You both worked with the Vatican on AI. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What, what the reception was like? Uh, what kind of work is being done in Rome? Sure. There's sort of two parts to it. I can start and talk a little bit about the book that Brian and I co-authored with a third author, um, and the Vatican was a a collaborator in that effort. And then he can tell you a little bit more about some of the academic work that continues to go on um, with the Vatican as well. So um, their involvement, you know, we're in Silicon Valley. We're at Santa Clara University, which is the Jesuit University in Silicon Valley. And um, really, 
what came together was some some thoughts and some actions to uh, lead to the development of this handbook. Um, so the name of our book, The uh, Ethics in the Age of Disruptive Technologies and Operational Roadmap, but that's a very long title. So we tend to just refer to it as the iTech Handbook, and iTech is the Institute for Technology, Ethics, and Culture. And that all came about because um, there were some conversations going on in Silicon Valley about um, technology and, and developing technology and some things that were on the minds of leaders, I think, that were troubling their conscience and they wanted to be talking it over with people. And so naturally, they gravitated towards some of their our, our local church leaders to have those discussions. At the same time, back at the Vatican, the Pope is always thinking about things that impact humanity and the Vatican is, uh, you know, deeply connected to humans around the world. So they had a curiosity about technology and its development, and they came to Silicon Valley to learn a little bit more about it. So through those conversations that were happening locally and the outreach from the Vatican and their visits, uh, a group of people were identified, and we've been working with a few people from the Dicastery of Culture and Education which is a part of the Vatican that reaches out to people of all faiths. And um, it's actually meant, you know, regular Zoom calls every couple of weeks with a couple of Silicon Valley, with the authors of the book, a couple of Silicon Valley tech executives, and a few representatives from the Vatican, including uh, Bishop Paul Tai. And um, they've just been great thought partners. uh, And they've been able to help us, to encourage us, to write something really practical to help and uh, give tools to people who are in organizations that give them the resources they need and the agency they need to be able to develop technology responsibly without waiting for legislation, for example, um, but being able to do it on their on their own. And so it's been a great experience to work with them, and they continue to work with us. The book is now launched. Um, but of course, we're we're interested in bringing together people who want to talk about these issues and convene them um, at iTech, uh, and so they continue to be to be working with us to think about ways to do that. And what I would say, first of all, just because I want to make sure I say it, all of these resources are available for free on the Markle Center website. So there's cool. anybody who wants anything, just go to the website and you'll you'll find it there. The handbook various other ethics resources, the framework for ethical decision-making that Anne was talking about. Those are all there. We'll link to that in the show notes. So we'll definitely put it there. Okay. Perfect. And, and so on the more academic side of things, Anne was talking about the industry side Uh, on the more academic side of things. This is kind of an interesting question because there were industry leaders once again, who went to the Vatican, you know, several years ago and said, Hey, you all need to be thinking about the impact of AI uh, on the world. So start thinking about it. And okay. And then Pope Francis, you know, says, shouldn't the American Jesuit universities be doing something about this? You know, the, the Catholic church has the benefit of having a bunch of universities out there. Um, and it, and so Bishop Paul Tai, as Anne mentioned, went to those universities and looked for the right people to talk to. They found us at the Markle Center as being one uh, good place to work with. And so we've, we've moved out from there. Um, both on the industry side that Anne was discussing and also on the academic side. So we have this AI research group, which works with the Dicastery for Culture and Education, which is just a fancy name for this is the part of the Vatican that does culture and education. (laughs) And uh, we've been talking about these sorts of issues with AI and the ethical side of things, the relational side of things, 
what does it mean in terms of consciousness? Can AI ever be conscious? Yeah. Uh, can everyone, anyone ever have a true relationship with AI? And we actually have a resource which should be coming out uh, later this year, um, which goes into these issues in depth. It's basically a short book. It's about, uh, well, maybe kind of a long book. It's about 80,000 words at this point. Yeah, that's a long book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it has, you know, it's broken down into sections. So if you're, if you're interested in one particular topic, you can flip there and see what a group of people who have, a, you know, a Christian background, Christian mindset, uh, have applied themselves to these problems for, for several years now, I guess close to three years, more than three years, actually, um, where we've been talking about these things in detail. And what have we come up with? Um, and of course, this is not meant to be the end of a discussion. This, is, this document is very much meant to be the beginning of the discussion, because this is going to be a huge issue. Um, it's one thing, you know, for a group of, of uh, Christians to get together. Most of us are Catholic, but actually not all of us mm -hmm. in the research group are Catholic. Um, there, are, there are several Protestant scholars involved also. Um, so we've brought this group together and we've done our best work. Uh, it's incomplete. It's nowhere near being done, but we want to put it out there just to get the ball rolling because there is mm. so much that we really need to think about. Wow. Okay. I've asked this question. We've gone into depth in other parts of this series, but I am curious. Uh, do you think AI is or could potentially be sentient, like half a consciousness? I know I'm asking 80,000 words in two sentences. So yeah, not fair. But so, so the conclusion that we've come to is no. And the fundamental reason uh, that we've come to that conclusion is because all examples of consciousness that we have so far are in living things. And AI by definition is not a living thing. So just to you know, boil it down really simply, we can, we can talk about, uh, you know, your pet dog is conscious, is sentient at least sentient means it experiences mm. feelings. And conscious means more like a self-awareness level. There yeah. could be, you know, I don't know. I don't know the internal life of a dog that well. I know some people certainly think that their dogs are more on the conscious side than than uh, maybe some people that they know. <laughs> Humans they know, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, okay. that's kind of the that's the short of it, which is that it yeah. looks like all examples of sentience and consciousness that we've seen are in living organisms. And uh, if a machine is not a living organism, which is not, then there's no conceivable way where it seems like it should be either sentient or conscious. However, there's a caveat, which is you mentioned Neuralink earlier. Yeah. And so if you start thinking about cyborgs and also there's a company in Australia, which has created a product called Dish Brain, where they've actually grown neurons on a chip on a big, you know, a computer chip, basically an electrical array with electrodes on it. They've grown up to a million neurons on this. And they've taught it to play Pong. So, you know, and that's, wow. that's, yeah, this is, this is, for some reason, it's always Pong, right? Or some other Things you know, I did game. not know. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Look up Dish Brain. I mean, I've written on this and it's posted on the, the internet also. Mm. But um, these ideas of bioelectric hybrids or cyborg type, type organisms are already being developed. Um, and they're developing fairly rapidly. I don't think they're going to develop as rapidly as AI is developing. So I think we mm. have a little bit more time to deal with them. But if there is something like a true artificial intelligence in the future, um, something that could be sentient or could be conscious, it would probably be one of these bioelectrical uh, hybrids. Wow. Anne, 
This is fascinating stuff. Any any thoughts on uh, consciousness? No. Do you think the singularity is happening in our lifetime or our children's lifetime, or do you not believe in a singularity? Basically, my working definition, as I understand it, you're the experts, is singularity is when AI evolves beyond what we are able to control, sort of the takeover, right? So I, I know Brian will have more to say about singularity, uh, but I would just start by reminding us that um, we already have technology that is we struggle to control, um, yeah. in, both on the everyday level. Something is that is seemingly as innocent as social media has, mm. of course, had lots of um, uh, negative uh, outcomes for human beings. But yeah. then, on a on a much larger scale, you know, atomic energy and nuclear warfare, and mm. so we already have technology that can actually destroy humanity. And um, the the most important part of that is are the human decisions that are being made around those technologies. Mm-hmm. So I know people are intrigued by this whole idea of whether or not AI can become smarter than us and do things that will ultimately outwit us. I'm much more concerned about um, how we're treating each other. Fair. Yeah. I thought about that. That's an interesting post. Is TikTok evidence of a sing- the singularity? <laughs> Brian. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think some people have called social media a psychological weapon of mass destruction, right? Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I get it. So there's yeah. there's all sorts of, you know, bad things happening already. Um I yeah. think one of the, one more thing of you know about the singularity, it's it's highly related, of course, to transhumanism. And once again, yeah. it's this kind of secular religious belief, which is that at some point we can create an artificial god. And any, you know, Christian should say, hey, I'm pretty sure there's something in the Bible about creating idols that are supposed to be little gods, and we create them with our own hands, and then guess what? It never works out. These these idols don't do what we (laughs) want them to. First of all, they do nothing, but now we're creating an idol, which we're trying to actually imbue with some sort of understanding or power, um, which is really just, you know, abstracted human intelligence, which has been delegated over to it, or however you want to describe it. But this idea of, of creating this thing, which will eventually outsmart us, um, there will be, you know, they talk about the intelligence explosion where it starts uh, writing its own code. Um, something like that isn't necessarily completely fictional. Um, you know, ChatGPT mm. can write its own code. Yeah. Um, it doesn't reprogram itself then, but there are people who are also already well, running People are trying to hack that every day. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. People are trying yeah. to do that already. Um, so we should recognize that this is possible, but we also should recognize that it's not the computer choosing to do this. There's a human being telling it right. to do that. Mm-hmm. And then probably, you know, when they get a model which they feel like works better, then they select that and they discard the others. It's a kind of artificial selection towards what you're aiming for. Um, and so we should not let ourselves off the hook. Uh, there are human beings making these choices, and uh, ultimately it's a human responsibility to create these things or not create them. And we need to have a societal level conversation. Um, Anne was talking earlier, you know, I didn't sign up to live in this world. Somebody else, you know, made it made it for us. There's a, there's actually, you know, a, a, a philosophical term underlying that is called societal informed consent. Is there something that we should be doing where we can say that uh, we can give, we can say that we've received consent from society to change society in particular ways? Uh, you know, if you go into a doctor's office, you have to sign a consent form. If you sign up for an app, you have to, you know, click the little button that says, I consent. Nobody nobody chooses to live in the society of the future. It's just being created. 
Um, and we might want to ask ourselves, is, is, should we at least have a conversation about this? Maybe we can't get everyone to sign their you know, initials on it, uh, but we can at least have the conversation about it um, and recognize once again, this is, this is our responsibility. We are the human beings here. We are the ones creating the technology. Ultimately, uh, this responsibility rests with us. And it was, you know, this is a responsibility given to us by God <laughs> to living in this world that we're in. We need to be responsible for each other. Our, our two commandments, you know, to love God and to love each other, uh, those are things that we're going to be held accountable for. Mm. And we need to make sure that we are fulfilling our role uh, and doing the work that has been assigned to us. Well, this has been, I think, a challenging but hopeful conversation. And you've reminded us, I love how you bring it back to the basics, whether it's the six issues we should all be wrestling with or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think it was Karl Barth, the uh, the theologian of the mid-20th century, who wrote tomes and tomes, just volumes on theology. And at the end of his life was asked, well, what's the most profound insight you have? And he said... Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So, you know, it's nice to nice to cut through all of this. So um, tell us again about the website and the books and the resources. And again, we'll link to that in the show notes. So where can people learn more? So the website is uh, this, the Markle Center website at Santa Clara, which is www.scu.edu backslash ethics. And you can also find all the information about the book on that website. There's a sub-website for the Institute for Technology, Ethics, and Culture. Um, the easiest way to find the handbook is to just go to Google and put in the iTech handbook. iTech is I-T-E-C. And it should bring you to our resources. Um, Brian, am I forgetting anything? No, I mean, there's there are just lots of resources there. Anyone who's interested in, in you know, we're, we are a comprehensive ethics center, so we're kind of different. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a lot of academic ethics centers, which might focus on bioethics or business ethics or one particular idea in ethics, the Markle Center is a is a much more broadly focused uh, organization. So that we have you know technology ethics, we have business ethics, leadership, uh, journalism, bioethics, government. We have you know a very wide variety of resources, lots of case studies, lots of articles, lots of resources for anybody who's looking for, you know, any sort of resources related to ethical decision-making. Wow. Man, this, is, this has been really helpful. I keep thinking through these issues. Thank you so much for framing them up for us in such a helpful and practical and yet meaningful way. Thanks so much, Anne. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, there was a lot there, wasn't there? Hey, and we're not quite done with our series tomorrow. We get hyper-practical with Kenny Jang, and we talk about untapped potential most leaders are missing, the ideal tech stack for average-sized churches, and a lot more. Here's an excerpt. I love this conversation more than some of the other conversations that might occur with AI, where AI is just set up as the big bad wolf. Mm -hmm. And it's a powerful tool, for sure. But it requires responsible stewardship, right? And AI is not devoid of ethics. It needs that conscious ethical programming use. And that's one of those things. One, they don't teach you in in seminary. They don't teach you that much in university. And so, but our culture needs this on a rapid basis. And so, Carrie, can the church be a leader in this area? That's one of the questions Mm -hmm. I'm asking myself. Can we lead by example? Can we start to build standards and best practices where the marketplace secular culture points 
to use cases of standards of policy and stewardship and things like the attribution, all these things that we worry about, how do we become the models for the public square? That's tomorrow on the podcast. And uh, remember to check out Glue's free texting. How would you like to get a 98% open rate with anybody you're communicating with? Go to get.glue.us slash texting to sign up for free. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O, get.glue.us slash texting and serve HQ. If you want to engage your volunteers and train them well, serve HQ is what you need to check out. You can check it out today to discover tools that you can use to begin engaging volunteers now. Go to servehq.church. So tomorrow is Kenny Jang. Then we are back to regularly scheduled programming with Louis Giglio, John Burke, Russell Moore, that's going to be good. Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon, Jenny Katrin, William Vanderblumen, and a lot more. And hey, if you haven't done it yet, sign up for my free newsletter on the rise. We talk about AI, but we also talk about church trends. We talk about interesting things. I even sent out uh, a link to some of the best bathrooms in America. Man, people love that one. I know, weird stuff like that, but things that I really find interesting and I love to learn from all kinds of fields, go to On The Rise newsletter, simple to subscribe, simple to unsubscribe, super easy. Join the 100,000 leaders who look forward to it every Friday at ontherisenewsletter.com. Thank you so much for listening. I know we're going deep. I would love to hear your feedback on this series. And you can do that by hitting me up on social, Carrie Newhoff on Instagram and on most other channels, or email me at Carrie at CarrieNewhoff.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our conversation today helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. <laughs>